Hi, everyone, and welcome to episode 165 of the Tick Bootcamp podcast. The title of today's interview is Giant's Shoulders, an interview with Dr. Joseph Buriscano. My name is Richard Johannesson. And I'm Matt Sabatello. So Matt, we've interviewed and complimented some of the young doctors like Dr. Casey Kelly and Dr. Brownbush for doing really creative work. But the truth is they wouldn't be able to do the creative work that they're doing and be safe and keep their medical licenses safe if it weren't for Dr. Joseph Buriscano. This is a guy very early on in the Lyme Wars in the you know, 70s and 80s and early 90s, who went out and took on a system that ultimately tried to take away his license. And it's because of his fight and because of what he stood for, these now young doctors can stand on his shoulders and they can treat their patients the way their patients deserve to be treated. And Rich, Dr. Buriscano taught us so much that we literally had to stop the interview and we're going to have a part two with him to continue on our discussion about all things Lyme disease. Dr. Buriscano talked to us about so many things Lyme related, like the necessity to exercise, even for those who are bed bound or wheelchair bound to be able to recover from Lyme. He said that in all of his patients, those who didn't move would not recover. He also talked to us about the cycle of Lyme disease, that there was a pattern he was able to detect to help treat Lyme disease. He also talked to us about persistent Lyme, how Lyme is a multi-system illness, and how treatment should be personalized to each individual. Dr. Buriscano also talked to us about how there's hope for us Lyme warriors. And Matt, finally, one of the things that Dr. Buriscano did is he gave us some clues about why it takes so long for patients to be diagnosed with Lyme disease. So Matt, without further ado, I'm really excited to introduce to the Tick Bootcamp community, the giant's shoulders, Dr. Joseph Buriscano. Hey, Dr. Buriscano, and welcome to the podcast. Thank you very much. Happy to be here. Uh, we're really excited to have you on this podcast. This has been a long time coming. Matt and I have been uh, Lyme geeks for a long time, and you're one of the people that has uh, we've admired greatly from a distance. And now uh, it really is uh, just really exciting for us and for our community to uh, finally have you on the podcast. So can you share with our listeners first where you are calling in from? Um, I'm still on Long Island in New York State. You are right. I, my home. Yep. So you're a Long Island boy. Absolutely. And uh, were you born and bred on Long Island as well? I was born in New York City, but raised on Eastern Long Island in Montauk. So Dr. Buriscano, talk to us about what your childhood was like and what kind of goals and dreams you had set for yourself uh, during your early life. Well, I always wanted to be outdoors. I never liked to be an indoor person. So I was always outdoors as a kid, um, as much as I could be. And, you know, I lived in Montauk and at the time, it was a very small town and the beaches were deserted and the woods were deserted and I was always out. And that's probably how I got my first tick bite. So what did you know about ticks during your childhood? I actually didn't know anything. I remember there was something on my back that was bothering me and I was digging at it. And this must have been, I was you know, not even a teenager then. And um, I never saw what it was, but whatever it was, I, I reached behind and I dug it out. And then I had this vague recollection that I read somewhere something about a bug that would bite people and hang on to them. I didn't know it was a tick. I didn't know anything about it. But, you know, that was back 100,000 years ago. And not many people knew much about tick bites then anyway, certainly not on the East Coast. So let's give this some context. So in what years are we talking about here? I mean, you're, you're in your later 60s now. So what were the childhood years for you in the, I'm assuming the 50s and 60s? Yeah, well, I, I moved to Montauk in 1965 um, in New York City until then. And so 1965, I guess, um, is when I went out. And that's when I first got tick bite. And I remember I was in ninth grade and I got incredibly sick, so sick. I was basically in the bed for about nine days, didn't eat or anything. 
And after I got well enough to get out of bed, I lost so much weight that my shoes were loose. Can you believe that? So I actually moved out to Long Island in 1965 as well. Um, and ticks were a big part of our experience, I can tell you, largely in the, you know, the later 60s, early 70s, where we were bitten by ticks often. So we were certainly tick aware. Um, and the, the tick disease that we were most aware of and most concerned about was Rocky Mountain spotted fever. So when did you first become aware of tick diseases or the illnesses that could uh, accompany being bitten by a tick? Uh, you know, later on in Montauk, you know, there were so many ticks. We had pets, cats, dogs, whatever, and they would come in full of ticks and we didn't think they were dangerous. We would pick them off, we would burn them, we'd stick needles in them, all the things that kids do to ticks. You know, it's an animal, you shouldn't mistreat a tick, but everybody hates ticks. <laughs> um, but that's really what it was until I actually got into medical practice. And, you know, I started practice in East Hampton, which is a part of Montauk area, 1981. Um, shortly after that is when the tick etiology of Lyme disease was published by Willie Bergdorfer. And, you know, the tick he collected was on Shelter Island, which was basically a bicycle ride away from my house at the time. Um, and I remember probably in the early 80s, maybe 83. Um, you know, let me backtrack. I mean, I did get Lyme disease back when I was in ninth grade. And I'm sure looking back, I had, if not Rocky Mountain, some other rickettsial disease and Babesia. With all the cats we had, I'm sure I had Bartonella then too. I mean, I was really, really sick. But, you know, I always had the attitude, ah, don't worry about it. And I never was, oh, I'm so sick. I'm uh, never, I'd sort of ignore it. And I always had this funny body. My knee would bother me. And I know that in a few weeks it would go away. And I'd say, all right, so what about it? And I'd get these high fevers and shaking chills and then it would go away. And as a teenager, if I drank alcohol, I got sick. So I never drank alcohol, but I never had this negative attitude. And somehow, I don't know, it carried me through. But I remember I was in my office, probably in 1983 or so. And one of my patients who was a nurse at the hospital came and said, gee, my son has this new disease. I said, what is it? She said, it's called Lyme disease. And I said, well, tell me about it. So she said, well, he's got this and that symptom. I said, wow, I had that too. She said, no, he's got this and that and this and that. I said, wow, I had that too. She said, no, he's got this, that, and this and that. I said, I had that too. So she points her finger right in my nose and says, you have Lyme disease. So I was so surprised by that. So, you know, I went to my medical contacts at the time, which is basically the health department in New York and the doctors in Southampton Hospital. Um, and that's when the research is just getting started on how to figure this whole thing out. And that's how my whole story began. Well, let's, let's walk it back a little bit, because I think your story began a little bit earlier than that, right? So you, you were a sickly kid. You now know your, your, um, your illnesses were driven by uh, the tick bites that you had suffered as a child, what role did that play in you becoming a doctor? I don't think it really played any role in, in that. I really don't think so. Cause again, I didn't think of myself as a sick person. I just had this crazy, funny body. Um, and I always liked to figure things out, how things worked. As a little kid, I used to take apart radios and vacuum cleaners and sometimes put them back together correctly, usually not. But I always had to know how things worked and the more complicated, the, the better. And I used to lie on my stomach on in my living room reading encyclopedias because I just was a suction for knowledge. Um, so it was just natural for me since I love biology and I like to know how things work. I mean, what's more complex and fascinating than the human body? And that's why I decided probably in my freshman year of, of high school to go into medicine. But that has nothing whatever to do with the fact that I was sick because I didn't think I was sick. Okay, so let's let's talk about this experience that you had where, you know, a, a 
sort of citizen scientist pointed out to you that your illness was was known as Lyme disease, right? Um, yeah. How did that impact your practice? Well, at the time, Alan McDonald was on the scene. He was a pathologist at Southampton Hospital, and he knew about ticks and spirochetes and Lyme disease. He was one of the very early researchers, and he and Willie Bergtofel worked together and some others. And he developed a culture for Lyme disease. And it was a blood culture. We'd take the blood and he'd incubate it. And he had this custom-made microscope, cost him, I don't know, thousands of dollars at the time. It's custom-made by Nikon, I believe. And um, he used that after culturing the spirochetes in special broth he made up. Um, and after a week or so, you could go to his lab, which was <laughs> in the basement of the hospital in the morgue of all places. And you could look in the microscope and see what was in your patient's blood. So about the time I was having a lot of patients come to me who had these weird symptoms. You know, they had trouble speaking correctly. They were lost for words, they'd fumble their words. They were tired, they were confused, everything hurt. And I would send them to the rheumatologists and they would say, well, they have an atypical lupus, but none of the tests show that. Nobody knew what it was. But then McDonald cultured them and wow, they were positive for this new Lyme disease thing. And so in one week, I called back, I forget at this point, like 70 or 80 patients in just one week alone whose symptoms were like that. And I sent the blood to McDonald and sure enough, it was positive for Lyme. Now also at the time, the health department was starting to study serologies for Lyme and they were doing IFAs. And um, you know, it was very early days of serology and a lot of the patients who were culture positive were serology negative. And so that's how the whole idea of seronegativity came about. So, when, well, actually, let me ask you this. Um, were your symptoms that you, had, that you had ultimately now had an explanation for something that was helpful to you in diagnosing your patients? Oh, absolutely. And you know, that's one of the things I think in the beginning anyway set me apart because someone would come to me having seen other doctors and told they were crazy or there's nothing wrong with you, you know, the story. And they come to me and they'd kind of be almost afraid to tell me what's going on. And I'd say, yeah, I know what that's like. I had that too. And I think this is what's going on. And this is what we're going to do and help you get better. And you're not crazy. This is something real. And so it definitely helped me. And I would appreciate all the different things, the Herc summer reactions, the four-week cycles, the things that migrated, all that. And so it made a huge difference, I think, especially in the early days when we were just learning. So do you believe that you were doing a better job clinically than most of your colleagues because you yourself had been suffering from this disease and you could identify with the symptomology that your patients were presenting? Or was there something else that was causing you to have a different relationship with your patients? You know, um, I went to medical school at NYU and NYU at the time, maybe it's still the same way, they really emphasized clinical bedside medicine. You know, we studied our brains that we read textbooks weekly. I mean, it's a crazy amount of learning, but from the very first week in medical school, when you're normally for the first two years in a textbook classroom type situation, the very first week they brought us to the hospitals. We saw patients, we made rounds with the attending physicians. And so I learned bedside medicine. And one of the things I insisted upon in my practice from day number one is that every patient at every visit would get a thorough history and a thorough physical exam. It wasn't like come in get a sore throat swab and you're out. And I would schedule 20 to 30 minutes per patient for every single visit. And so I learned from the patients and I had the time to ask the questions. And if I ran overtime, I ran overtime. I didn't have lunch. And so, I mean, that's one of the keys about Lyme. And sure, 
a lot of you will appreciate that, is that it takes a long time to tell the story. In this day of insurance medicine, where you're allowed five or 10 minutes, you just can't do a good job. So a lot of things came together all at once. Number one, I had it myself and I kind of knew what the patients were talking about. Number two, we had McDonald's blood culture um, and all the colleagues around me who were starting to wake up and learn about this. The third thing was just my practice model independent of Lyme allowed me the luxury and the patients the advantage of spending time with the doctor who knew what they were talking about. So before we focus on the testing, which I do want to walk back to in a minute, I'd like to focus on the difference between a clinician and a researcher because I, you've been in you've been in both camps and what is a doctor when serving in a clinical environment supposed to be doing with his or her or their patients well number one is you listen to your patient you get most information from the interview 80 90 percent very small comes from the physical exam it's all from the interview so now in the over 160 people we've interviewed so far, we've heard almost every person tell us that when they've gone to their doctor, it's been an invalidating experience, that the doctors yeah. did not believe them, did not listen to them, and certainly didn't support them. And what we've seen in some of the research that we've done, Matt and I, is that the average doctor will interrupt a patient within 30 seconds of the patient opening their mouth and sharing their concerns or their challenges. Um, why were you trained at NYU to have this different type of relationship and why hasn't that relationship become the mainstream relationship between patients and doctors in a clinical setting? You know, I really don't know why that is. Um, maybe it's my background of liking to know how things worked. Um, the fact that I'm kind of a people person, I want to talk to people, learn about their life, not just their disease. And the whole thing flowed. So let's, let's talk about... Um, what a doctor is supposed to do in a clinical setting in a little bit more detail. See, it's our understanding that doctors are trained to use um, frameworks or, you know, the acceptable medical practices. Right. And then when a patient is presented to the doctor, what the doctor is supposed to do is determine whether or not the patient is an outlier or using the scientific method or whether or not the, the traditional frameworks or the medically acceptable practices are, uh, are going to apply to that patient. Um, why do you believe most doctors are uncomfortable with using the scientific method in the clinical setting and treating outliers as outliers? You know, that's a really good question. And I really don't have the answer to that. I don't know. Um, I don't know. Um, maybe not having lived the life of a Lyme patient, they just can't accept it. Uh, maybe they just press for time and don't want to hear someone with 5,000 complaints that's vague. Maybe they're insecure because they don't know what's going on. I don't really know. Um, but if someone said to me, you know, XYZ is going on and it's a little bit unusual, I'd say, wow, that's an interesting. Tell me more about it. Not, oh, you're crazy. Let's go to a different topic. But, you know, the basic structure, you're trying to get to like, what's the structure of what the doctor is supposed to do? Well, there are two kinds of structures that you learn in medical school. One is how you write up a history and how you take a history. One is you get the chief complaint. How old is a person? What's their gender? What's the thing that's really bothering them? And then you go into detail about that whole entire thing. But then very importantly, you have what's called a review of systems where you want to ask about everything from head to toe. Do you get headaches? Do your eyes bother you? How about your ears, your nose, your throat, and you work your way through the whole entire body. Very few people do that. And that's one of the things I insisted upon 
as I said, at every single visit of every single patient. In the beginning, the non-Lyme patients looked at me like, what, what's wrong with you? I just came for a sore throat. Why are you asking me about my bowels? You know, but so that's one big part of it. And one thing I always did and very important for Lyme disease. If you don't do that, you're going to miss all of it. Um, and the second thing is you die, you um, separate out your assessment into what's called SOAP, S-O-A-P, subjective, objective assessment and plan. And I'm a very organized kind of a person. And for example, my assessment would be number one, um, obvious Lyme disease, seronegative. Number two, concern about immune system being low because they're seronegative. Number three, Babesia might be there. Number four, bad joints. Number five, also has bad stomach, whatever. But then my plan also numbered would be plan number one would address issue number one and plan number two, issue number two. So I go through the whole thing systematically and I'd either photocopy that or copy it longhand for the patient to have with them to take home because that would be their plan of attack. So they'd also know what I'm thinking, what I think is going on with them and what step-by-step step we're gonna do. So it made the two of us into what we call a therapeutic alliance. We helped each other out. I figured out better because they helped me and they figured out, you know, I, you know, I learned better, they learned better. And when they have someone who's on their side and listening to them, they become better patients. Now, and you've been very kind with the way you answered, but I, I have to push you a little bit harder on this because I right. think one of the reasons why doctors are fearful of treating outliers and diagnosing people as outliers is because it's risky. And, and I think there are two major risks that doctors face when, uh, when, they, when they diagnose and treat outliers. Number one, our lawyers, because ah. if, if something happens, of course, and you are treating someone with some more creatively than the accepted medical practices would, um, would you would utilize, uh, people like me might sue you. But there's a second one, and you are sort of the model, I think, in the Lyme community for someone who very bravely stood up and, and, and defended his right to treat what would certainly be considered outliers when you are treating them in the late 90s and the early 2000s. Um, and uh, they ultimately sought to uh, remove your license. So let's talk about that element, because I, I think on some level, your experience has become the boogeyman experience for a lot of doctors that we've interviewed, <laughs> because you stood up for your patients and you treated them the way they should have been treated and they tried to take your license. So talk about those two threats that exist for doctors and why that essentially encourages doctors to be less than creative and, and be less willing to treat outliers. Oh, that's definitely the case because nowadays, you know, we always talk about the protocol and who makes the protocol often the insurance company um, and universities who get paid by insurance companies and whoever else are the power groups who have patents on lab tests or treatments or who knows what. So there's a kind of a mainstream status quo. And if you go outside that mainstream status quo, you're at risk because people who are the ones who are the police of medicine, be it medical societies or um, medical boards, or in some cases, insurance companies, they criticize you because you're not going by the protocol. So now you can try and defend yourself um, and sometimes it works, but usually it doesn't, or I shouldn't say usually, if you go out outside the boundaries of what they consider okay, once in a while, no big deal. But if you're constantly doing it and you're costing the insurance companies lots of money because you're using lots of medication, lots of nursing, lots of IVs, lots of tests, um, they want to make you stop doing that. So 
the one hand is, of course, people worried about malpractice, but the flip side is how many cases should or could come where people are not being diagnosed properly or not being treated properly. And then second, of course, the big risk is the medical boards. And you know, in New York State, the medical board is more or less secret. No one is allowed to know who lodged the complaint. And what we heard from insiders is that usually it's insurance companies or doctors who are induced by insurance companies to file the complaint. Um, and the idea is to get rid of the expensive doctors or get rid of the doctors who are upsetting the status quo. So, you know, is it political? Is it whatever it is? I don't know, but that's what has been the problem. In the beginning of, of Lyme disease, it was more or less your colleagues saying, I don't know what that guy's doing. They criticized me once of seeing all these Lyme patients because of, of money. The truth is I hardly made any money in my practice. There are many weeks I went home with no salary and they're saying, oh, he's got a tick-shaped swimming pool in his backyard. I don't even have a swimming pool. You know, so it's crazy things like that. So sometimes colleagues are jealous. Sometimes they just don't understand. Sometimes they want to stop you because the patient had gone to them and they came to me and now they got better and they criticized that first doctor. All those things come into play. So now people with Lyme disease are now coming to see you in droves, right? You yourself have Lyme. You understand what the symptoms are of Lyme because you've lived with them for a long time before you became a doctor. You're now starting to see patterns develop and you're doing what you were trained to do as a clinician, which is treat people who are clearly outliers because there was no protocol for people who are suffering from Lyme disease because we didn't know what it was. Right. And you now find yourself in personal and professional jeopardy as a consequence of doing what you were trained to do at NYU and what you swore to do when you became a doctor. Well, you know, that was a tough time for me and for the whole family because it's a big threat. Um, you know, if you lose your practice, it's not just losing your practice, it's losing your career, your livelihood, your license. What am I going to do? You know, flip hamburgers? You know, so... Um, I didn't really know what to do when I first got involved in this whole legal thing. Um, am I going to fight it? You know, statistics are that over 90%, I forget what 95% who go through these things have some sanction on their license or lose their license. So the odds are definitely stacked against you. So I said, gee, should I just give up, you know, give up my license and, and just stop? Um, and my wife was a strong one. She said, absolutely not. You're not going to let them get away with it. You know what you're doing is correct. And you know what they're doing is not correct. You got to fight it. And thank God for the support groups and the patients who supported me. I got letters and donations actually to a, a fund to help fund the lawyers. The legal bill was over a million dollars. It was one of the largest and most complex cases in the history of the, United, of the New York State Medical Board. And um, after almost two years of fighting back and forth, I was... Um, told that it was a medical debate and not something, this whole Lyme disease thing was a medical debate and not something that a medical board is gonna solve. And they did not restrict my license. I was not given a fine. I had to be monitored by a doctor of my choice. Um, and that was it. So now, of course we did discuss a little bit about who is incentivizing this kind of um, attack of doctors who are doing what they're trained and sworn to do. And you do become sort of, you know, the boogeyman for many doctors, including young doctors who I've worked with when I was uh, bitten by a tick, who are very, very conscious of the impact 
that this type of challenge could present to their license and of course their livelihood. So um, <coughs> we, we love you for having fought the fight and your wife for standing behind you and all the other people that stood behind you, but it's still a challenge that blind patients are facing to this day. And now, for example, on Long Island where the three of us live, I, you know, I've had many friends who were, um, who have Lyme disease. I have many people who have been bitten by ticks and I have no one to send them to. When I was bitten by a tick last year, I had to, I had to have a tele, um, health um, appointment with a doctor in Chicago who's brilliant. Dr. Casey Kelly's brilliant. I loved working with her, but I had to, I had to go, you know, I had to have a, uh, a, a, a telehealth uh, contact with her. And then recently when I was bitten by a tick, I had to work with Dr. Rawls again by, by telehealth in North Carolina. So I'm living on Long Island, the tip of the spear, you know, the, the birthplace of Lyme disease. And I have to go to Chicago and North Carolina to get care. And there's no one here that I can go to or other people can, can treat with. You think that was the intent of the, uh, of the insurance companies? Well, I don't know if it was insurance companies, but whoever was behind it, I'm sure it was more than one group and one person. But the idea was at the time I was the leader, the spokesperson, the one leading the charge about Lyme being possibly seronegative, about co-infections, about needing long-term treatment, using combination antibiotics, all the things we do nowadays and we accept, at least in the ILED world. Um, so they figured if they could silence me, that would stop pretty much most, if not all of it, would scare everyone away and just silence my voice. So the fact that I prevailed was very, very helpful for a lot of the patients, but it still scared the doctors. And even after I set this precedent of not losing, you want to call it that, the medical board still were going after other doctors too. Um, they would not stop. Now, the rule in New York at the time, maybe still is, is that for them to come after a doctor, there has to be a pattern of something being wrong. Like they do, if the one mistake happens, it's not obviously terribly bad, that's not the issue. But if they get complaint after complaint or the problem with, let's say, several patients, not just a one-time example, then they're obliged to do an investigation. So it's kind of a mechanistic thing. And those who know the mechanism, who want to come after somebody, just use that and, and force the state to go by their own rules and, um, and start an investigation. So now let's talk about the tools you had available to you to both diagnose and treat your patients and then ultimately defend yourself when you found yourself uh, facing this uh, unbelievable um, challenge. Um, you said that Dr. McDonald had begun to develop some of the early testing that you were, you were then using to diagnose your patients. So can you talk to us more about Dr. McDonald's testing and whether or not you yourself had used that test to, to uh, test your Lyme disease and were you using it to test your patients? I did not use it for myself, um, but I did use it for a lot of the patients. Now he didn't do that many cultures. He did less than a hundred altogether. So it wasn't that much, but the pattern that he did and the findings that I found using that culture kind of set the way of, of how I treated. And, you know, we always say Lyme is a clinical diagnosis. So if you see the same exact pattern, five times, 10 times, 15, 20, 30, 40, 50, 60 times, you know, it's, it's obvious, you know? So that's how the whole clinical picture came about, came about. And using the culture kind of confirmed the clinical picture. Um, so the culture was more a guide point than it was actually something I could use in my hundreds of thousands at that point patients. Um, and that 
opened the eyes of myself and, and my colleagues who, who thought the same way. But see, McDonald had um, gone to medical meetings and showed videos and, and slides of his cultures and people tried to duplicate his work and they could not because he kept his formula secret, which might've been a mistake at the time. And then they saw it say he was fudging his results and he was not seeing spirochetes. And he went to prove that there were spirochetes by monoclonal staining, by DNA PCR, by electron microscopy, by every kind of method you can imagine. And it was correct, he really had that. Um, but he got discouraged and stopped the culturing. In fact, even left Long Island and moved away. And he said, I'm, I'm through with it. And that's the end of it. So that unfortunately was terrible. And because his colleagues did not support him, he never could get his work published. And because my work was based on his, I could not publish my work because I had nothing to say that, oh, this is supported by the culture. What they say, what culture? So that kind of set the tone for the fact that what I was doing was clinical and people could attack it very easily. They said, we don't know about McDonald's culture. You can't culture spirochetes. The blood test was negative or Maybe it wasn't negative, but it doesn't fit the picture of a Bell's palsy and a swollen knee. So let's focus on that for one more minute. And then Matt, Matt is going to want to take you through the testing challenges. But one of the things we've identified consistently is that folks need to see on average, I think, I think this is uh, Dr. Fallon's research um, at a Columbia University showed that the average child needs to see seven different doctors before he, she, or they are diagnosed with Lyme disease. And we're seeing at least in our podcast that, that you need to see an even larger number of doctors. In one case, um, you know, the, the founders of the um, Live Lyme Foundation had to see 50 doctors in one year before she finally got her, her diagnosis. So we have this really strange environment, I would think from a, from a, a, a clinical standpoint where Lyme disease is a clinical diagnosis because we don't have any tests that can be used to define Lyme disease, yet we place some really strict limitations on doctors having the right to make a clinical diagnosis. And if you make the clinical diagnosis, we're going to punish you. We're going to sue you. We're going to try to take your license away. And you essentially have to be this really brave person willing to you know, risk it all in order to be able to properly diagnose the people who you are seeing present with the same consistent set of patterns. So do we really have an environment where we're going to get any outcome other than needing to see 50 doctors before you can finally find somebody who's brave enough to clinically diagnose you? Well, the simple answer is that, you know, you're an attorney, let's make you head of the CDC. <laughs> I, I accept the appointment. So when, when you get elected president of the United States, please consider my application. <laughs> All right. I'll have that on top of my desk. Well, you know, let's go back to what you first asked. I mean, Lyme is a multi-system illness and it waxes and wanes and changes. So someone who doesn't know about Lyme or didn't think about it in the very beginning, who maybe didn't remember a tick bite or whatever the story is, some down, now they suddenly come down to swollen knee. So they might go to an orthopedist and he says, well, I don't know, there's nothing going on. And, you know, we'll, we'll do physical therapy and wrap it and give you some non-steroidals or aspirins or whatever. And then, okay, well, that's going on. And then you start to get tingling hands and feet. You go to your doctor so, well, you know, you're hyperventilating or you need better vitamins, you have whatever's wrong with your life habits. And then if it gets really bad, you might see a neurologist and they do a nerve conduction test, which misses two thirds of neuropathies. So they say, well, I don't know. And they send you back. And then you're getting headaches and then you might see someone about TMJ. And you know, so you make the rounds because it's a multi-system illness. And then the fact that so many different things that seem to be unconnected to the uninitiated are going on. And the fact that they go away 
and then come out in some other way. That's why patients often get labeled as being crazy or histrionic or attention seekers or who knows what. Um, and so big part of this is educating the patients to realize it's a multi-system illness, that these things might all be related. Maybe not, but they might be. And you got to pull it all together. And then the big trick is to find someone who'll listen to them. That's the problem. But, you know, as you mentioned yourself, maybe the COVID epidemic pandemic is a blessing in disguise in the sense that we now can talk to a doctor in California or Colorado or Florida, you know, find a Lyme literate person who's not in your backyard. So Dr. Vera Scott, let's go a little bit more into the details about the testing you described when you were practicing medicine. So what was the difference between Dr. McDonald's testing that he was doing and the standard testing being done by labs like LabCorp and Quest? Well, different methods. You know, when someone has an infection, the normal thing that happens is your body's immune system mounts an immune response, and that can be measured by a blood test called a serology. That's an IFA and ELISA, that kind of a thing. Um, so that's basically an indirect measure of whether your body's been exposed to something. Um, the difference with McDonald is that his was a culture where he actually took a sample of blood, incubated it in, in a test tube for a number of days with nutrients. And over a period of time, if Lyme was present, it would start to grow and you'd see it and you could test and show it was really a Lyme germ. So that's a more direct measure that if the test showed positive, then the day you took that blood test, you had actually a living Lyme disease in your body. But now, you know, I'm gonna fast forward a little bit. A lot of people to this day are seronegative on tests like by LabCorp for Lyme disease. Well, the work that Igenix has been do doing has found that, you know, there are a lot of different Borrelia in humans in America, including the European strains and animal strains and weird strains. And they did a study, number of different studies. And they found that, um, they took patients who were seronegative in the standard Lyme test and tested them, and they were positive by the Igenix immunoblot for all sorts of different species of Borrelia, different Lyme Borrelia called Borrelia sensolato, the, the, the broader group of Lyme germs, including the European and, and animal strains and species. And they also included um, tick-borne relapsing fever, and they found that in a lot of the patients too. And I want to take a second to talk about that. If you look in a textbook, what is tick-borne relapsing fever? They'll tell you it's an illness where you get this very high fever and you feel really bad, 103, 104 degrees and terrible shaking chills. And then it resolves in a crisis with sweats. And then over the next few days, you start to feel back to normal. Five to seven days later, it repeats itself and then goes back to normal. So that's been the classic description. But in the hygienic studies, they found a huge number of people who were diagnosed clinically as having Lyme did not have Lyme Borrelia. They had relapsing fever Borrelia. They didn't have this cycle of fevers and sweats and being good and then bad and then good and then bad. So apparently that type of presentation of relapsing fever is a small minority. In fact, it's like how many people with Lyme really get a Bell's palsy? So if you look at the broader picture, seronegativity may not be it's a bad test, but that you're testing for the wrong species. Now, back in the day, I didn't have access to anything like that at Igenix. We had McDonald's culture, which did pick up all the species, and we had the state lab tests and then the commercial ones, which picked up a lab strain. Now, that's another thing to talk about. The tick strains or the, the spirochete strains that labs use, commercial labs use, they give it a name. It's called B31. That was a spirochete collected from a tick from Shelter Island, New York, 
by Willy Bergdorfer back in the day. So now that was a, a tick spirochete, probably never came in contact with human blood. And that has been the basis of the great majority of the federal tests um, and the commercial tests that are being done. And in fact, if you want to develop a new lab test, like a new ELISA, you have to have what's called a comparator. And the comparator is a test based on B31. So how many people in the real world have a strain B31? Well, the truth is very, very few. So again, the whole foundation of the testing for Lyme disease using so-called standard serologies are based on kind of a missed, missed opportunity, a misconception, or just the trouble of having to base your test on a B31 strain if you want to get FDA approval. So let's talk about the bigger picture about approximately how many strains are there of Lyme disease and how many of these strains are being tested for in your standard testing through like a LabCorp or a Quest? LabCorp and Quest, well, that's another thing. They will use lab strains like B31 as their basis and they might use variations of B31. Um, and what we don't know and what they don't publish is number one, how sensitive is it in the real world? Not how does it compare to the CDC's version of that test. But the other thing we don't know is if you have not Lyme, but relapsing fever or one of these other European strains, will that pick it up or will it not pick it up? You know, let's say you do a Western blot. A Western blot is a kind of a serologic test that shows different bands, different protein reactions to what came from the spirochete. You know, you're supposed to have so many bands that are specific for Lyme disease before you call it a positive test. But what if you have fewer than those bands or some atypical bands? Well, maybe that's not necessarily a false negative. Maybe what that is, is that there are different species that you're infected with and it's sort of giving a phony reaction to it. And that's again, the advantage of the modern testing, which looks for all the different species. So talk to us more about the older testing, specifically the testing that was done at Stony Brook University right here on Long Island and how that compared to the testing being done by Dr. McDonald and now by you through Igenix. Stony Brook testing was um, a serology. It was like a standard ELISA and a Western blot. Their test actually wasn't that bad as far as serology is concerned because they grew their own spirochetes and they made their own Western blots. They didn't buy some test kit from a, you know, a German company or some company in God knows where. So when we had to do serologies, we'd always use Igenix and Stony Brook. And those are the two kind of gold standards back in the day when we didn't know anything about relapsing fevers and all the other different strains. But those were the ones that were good. Also, both of those labs, you can actually call the lab direct and discuss the results. Say, you know, what do you think about this test result? It looks suspicious. What do you think? And they might give you advice or rerun the test or have you send another blood sample. So as far as serology is concerned, the Sonnenberg test was not that bad, but again, it was based on Lyme Borrelia and the one prototype North American strain, Borrelia burgdorferi stricto. They didn't look for what we now know like Maonii and Miyamotai and, and uh, Afzeliae, Garinii, on and on and on it goes. So again, there are still seronegatives even with those better labs. Dr. Bierscott, talk to us more about the NIH gold stain that you discovered in 1991. Oh, I didn't discover that, NIH did. Um, they found that when an animal and a human are infected with Borrelia, they are often shed into the urine. Fragments of the Borrelia, proteins, blebs, so forth, and sometimes intact spirochetes. And so they developed a stain, a gold stain, it was called. Basically, it was a type of an antigen capture stain that would 
have particles that would stick to the spirochete and the spirochete particles. And then that was bound to gold, you know, the metal gold nanoparticles. And that gold allowed it to be visualized under an electron microscope. So to make a long story short, they would have infected animals or human samples, and they'd subject it to this electron microscopy. And you would see fragments of spirochetes and intact spirochetes in the urine. They also found them in people's tears, believe it or not. So when this was discovered, um, the research, <laughs> the government was not willing to support this research and the research got off the ground, believe it or not, Karen Forsch's Lyme Disease Foundation donated $5,000 to the federal government's lab to get them to do the testing and develop this thing. And that's what they did. And um, myself and several colleagues submitted samples, blood samples usually, and in some cases tears, and they ran the tests and we found that if a patient was symptomatic, odds are they had spirochetes in their blood, I'm sorry, in their urine or fragments of spirochetes, even those who were treated, and even those who were treated sometimes for more than a year, if they were still symptomatic, odds are you would pick up the, the infection in the urine. Um, so and they also did testing on other germs, um, other spirochetes, and it absolutely did not cross-react. So this was a real solid result. Apparently when all this came out and got public, the NIH stopped funding that test and stopped funding that whole gold stain procedure and the whole thing closed down and nothing came of it. However, a lab um, in Connecticut at the time was called Dianon Lab. They took that method and they made it into kind of a reverse ELISA and a reverse Western blot. And that became the Lyme urine antigen test that they offered. Um, and that test you can still get today. It's actually done in biogenics. They, they either they converted Dianon Lab into hygienics or they bought them. I don't know the, the history there, but the whole Goldstein thing basically supported everything that we said that people who are chronically sick despite treatment still are infected. It, it just is very hard to fathom why a test like that, that's so much more accurate than the current testing at the time was shut down and not funded by the NIH who discovered this sort of testing. So what are your thoughts on why the National Institute of Health would shut down this testing protocol considering it was the best on the market at the time? Well, I mean, it was very cumbersome. You'd have to take I mean, you needed an electron microscope and nanoparticles of gold, which I don't even know how they made them and where they got them from. So it definitely was not the kind of test that could be done routinely. Yes, for research, um, but it was deemed not practical and was shut down for that reason, as far as I know. And don't forget, the NIH is not in the business of developing lab tests, say they're researchers. So for some reason, there seems to be a lot of restrictions placed on New York State with, with Lyme disease testing. And we have read that some of the urine testing from hygienics at some point in time, they were not permitted by New York State government. So is that something that's still in play today? Can you talk to us about why the state has refused certain tests to be done for Lyme disease? New York is the one state in the union that has their own validation requirements for these types of tests. So a lab can get approval by CLIA and Medicare and their local states but they have to separately get clearance by New York State. And um, I'm vague on the history of the how scenario behind the Lyme urine test in New York State, but apparently when he talked to Nick Harris who ran the test, um, the state wanted some unknowns that they could test and the Lyme urine test had to be done fresh. Um, if it got stale, it wouldn't work. And they, the state had kept the specimens he claimed over two weeks before they tested it. And then they found it wasn't accurate. So he complained to them that he didn't want to run the test because it was too old. And they said, no, you have to do it. And he did it and the results were not validated. So he could not run the urine test in New York state. I mean, that's his story. I don't know what the state has to say, but I don't think he's lying. <laughs> so from your experience as a clinician here in New York state, 
Can you talk to us about when you would use IV antibiotics versus oral antibiotics in a Lyme patient? Well, that's a very good question. And one question I didn't have the answer to in the very, in the very beginning. So what I did was um, I took my office and I completely closed it for a whole entire week. And I kept my staff there. Each of us went in a different room with piles and piles and piles of charts and long handed spreadsheets. I mean, there was no computers in those days, but these gigantic pads of paper, like two feet long. And we had all these columns and we would Every single chart we went through and we tabulated the symptoms, the test results, um, the outcomes, the treatments I got, all the different things that we could pick out of the charts. And in the end, it was almost 700 patients that were able to tabulate. And I looked up who were the ones who ended up needing IV before they got better. And there's certain things that stuck out. Advanced age, over age 60, um, 65, I believe it was, was one of the things that statistically popped out people who had the arthritic form of Lyme or who had a reactive spinal fluid, obviously people who failed orals, um, and on it goes, and also those with immune deficiencies. So another thing that came out, which sort of formed in concert with other things, the picture of what is chronic Lyme, is that people who were sick for more than one year, in my experience, had to really do the IV to get over it. Um, about the time the NIH, also the Rocky Mountain Lab, they had published reports that Lyme Borrelia will attack the immune system by attacking the B cells and T cells, and they can inhibit their function and in some cases even kill them. So I found that apparently this was a process that reached some kind of a critical value, if you want to call it that, after about a year of being sick. So my impression and my definition of chronic Lyme is someone who's been chronically sick with symptoms of active disease for one year or longer. And that was borne out by the immune function studies, as well as by the fact that these are the ones who needed IV. So let's talk more about that. Many people in the chronic Lyme community have developed or been misdiagnosed with various autoimmune conditions. So what role does Lyme disease play in causing or impacting autoimmune-like conditions in these patients? Well, that's really complicated. First of all, one obvious thing is that maybe these people are not autoimmune, they're infected. And what people think is a rheumatoid or a an atypical rheumatoid, an atypical lupus or an atypical MS is really not those things. It's an infection, Lyme. And when I say Lyme, I'm including the co-infections as well. So one huge part of it is misdiagnosis or misinterpretation of what's going on. The second thing is that an active chronic infection of Lyme and Lyme plus, if you want to call Lyme and co-infections, um, does things to the body. It inhibits the body's ability to remove toxins. And people who have chronic Lyme disproportionately have heavy metals and insecticides and mold mycotoxins and other things that are in their system. And that can also induce symptoms that are consistent with autoimmunity. Now, um, if you talk to researchers who look at autoimmune diseases of the nervous system, uh, specifically Dr. Cunningham, she doesn't call it autoimmunity from Lyme. She calls it um, autoreactivity, um, autosensitivity. In other words, if the Lyme germs are there, you look like you have an autoimmune disease. When you clear the infection, this autoimmune goes away because it's being driven by the infection. And in my experience, that's basically what I found. So let's talk about those other things you mentioned, like heavy metal toxicity and mold exposure, which make people with chronic Lyme feel even worse. From your experience treating Lyme, does treating the underlying infection cause those other sensitivities to go away, or do they need to be managed separately as well? It really depends on the patient. But, you know, back in the early days, um, we didn't know much about these other things. We didn't know anything about a lot of it. And certainly I did not. 
Um, and our chronic Lyme patients would come in and I didn't know about mold or test them for mold or for heavy metals or any of those things. But I would aggressively treat the Lyme disease often with IV antibiotics. And if not, then combinations of orals. And over time, as the Lyme symptoms went away, everything got better. And so as they healed from the infection, apparently the internals that were off also healed. Um, nowadays, people are much more aware of these other toxicities and they are addressed directly along with the Lyme disease. And in the sickle Lyme patients, these things are often addressed before the antibiotics are given to make the person more tolerant of the treatments and of the Herxheimer's. You know, I would end up putting people on treatment sometimes for many months, sometimes even over a year, not to pound away at them so much, but because they were so reactive, they were started on teeny weeny doses or pulse therapies to get them through the Herxheimer's. So little by little, they got over the infection. And as that happened, they cleared their toxicities. So the long-term treatment wasn't necessarily because Lyme itself needed it, although it did in many cases. It was also to gently get the person through the worst of it. So let's talk about the standard dosing of doxycycline or antibiotic treatment today, because the, the most common dosing today is 200 milligrams per day for Lyme disease. But yet you found in a study you did that 300 milligrams a day failed 100% of the time. Well, it's known, it's well known now by looking at the literature that 200 milligrams a day of doxycycline doesn't get into the blood, or I shouldn't say into the brain in enough concentration to kill Lyme disease. Um, and people say, well, if you don't have a positive spinal tap, you don't have Lyme disease in the brain. Well, that's completely crazy because the tick bites you, the, the spirochetes get into your bloodstream right away. Um, they travel through the bloodstream and hopefully you're getting blood into your brain. <laughs> so my thinking is that early Lyme disease in fact, all Lyme disease involves central nervous system infection. Um, you can see very beautiful videos. We've seen these at conferences where spirochetes will get into the bloodstream and very quickly attach to the inner lining of the arteries and veins and burrow through them into the tissues. And that is not blocked by the blood-brain barrier. So to get back to your original question about doses of doxycycline, one thing is if it's not enough dose, it's not gonna get where the Lyme germs are hiding. And my experience is that if you undertreat Lyme, it makes it worse in the long run. You kill the weaker germs, leave the stronger ones behind. You kill the superficial Lyme and leave the deeper Lyme deep. And so many of my patients who had seen other doctors who failed treatment had the same story of getting underdosed in the beginning, either because the doctor just didn't know any better or because they were diagnosed as like a sinus infection or a strep throat or something cellulitis and given a non-Lyme antibiotic in too low of a dose. Um, so anyway, Aside from the fact that literature shows that 200 milligrams a day doesn't get into the bloodstream through the brain into the blood-brain barrier well enough, um, other things happen. I was involved in a clinical study once where early Lyme patients would come in and be randomized to either moxicillin or to doxycycline, and the dose of doxy was uh, 300 milligrams a day for six weeks. So after that treatment, these early Lyme patients by and large did well, but over time, because I wasn't you know, a research center where you came and did your treatment and disappeared for the rest of your life. I was the primary care doctor and I would see the people and follow up. And 100% of those people, 100% had a recurrence of the Lyme disease. It all came back. So I figured something is not right about this. Um, and I ended up doing a study where I actually measured blood levels of antibiotic because you can tell how much antibiotic is needed to kill a germ by putting varying amounts in the test tube and seeing how much you really need to kill the germ. 
we call it inhibitory and bactericidal concentrations. So we know what that is for killing Lyme with doxycycline. And so if you put someone on doxycycline, you test the blood, you measure how much doxy is actually in the bloodstream. And I found that a couple of interesting things. One thing is that you need at least 400 milligrams a day in an adult to get to an adequate blood level. And some people need as much as 600 milligrams. Another thing I found out is that not everybody absorbs and digests the doxycycline in the same way. Now, if you go to the, you know, the pharmacology textbooks, they always say doxycycline is 100% absorbed. Well, <laughs> the real world is not the case. Um, and I found there are some people who had very low blood levels and some people had good blood levels. And if you compare the lows to the highs, it's a tenfold difference between the good absorbers and the poor absorbers. So in some people, you can give them even 600 milligrams and it didn't do anything because it wasn't enough to kill the germ. It didn't get into the bloodstream. So one of the routine recommendations I make, and I used to always do in my practice, if I'm going to commit someone to a fairly long course of an oral antibiotic, I always measured blood levels before and after a dose to see the trough and the peak. And if the peak is not high enough and the trough is not high enough, it's not going to work. So bottom line is you need enough medicine, in the case of doxy, at least 400 milligrams a day, and you really need to confirm it with the blood level because you might be surprised to find it's not working the way you expect. And we understand you've also experienced differences in the amount of treatment or dosing needed for different genders as well. So can you talk to us about your observations in females versus males and how that affected the dosing needed for those individuals? Well, it wasn't so much the dose as it was duration of treatment. So early in the days, you know, I've was trying to figure out dosages and which was a better antibiotic. And it wasn't just me alone. My colleagues helped me a great deal. But then I would have patients who would get, a, again, I'm talking very early days, early to mid 1980s. We'd give someone maybe a week or 10 days of amoxicillin or penicillin V or something like that. And then some would get a little bit better. But then as soon as we stopped, they'd get relapsed, they'd get worse again. So upon the advice of colleagues, they said, we'll try a little bit longer. So we went to two weeks, then we went to three weeks, and we went to four weeks, and then we went to six, and we went to two months, three, four, five, six. And I tabulated that when I, again, took my charts and looked through them. And I found that the success rate, I'm talking about someone disseminated ongoing Lyme, success rate of one month of treatment was 17%. The success rate would plateau, and this was with amoxicillin and probenicid, it plateaued at about four months for males and about six months for females. And the, the success rate was about two thirds, about 67%, 66%. Um, and some of those people would then respond to ceftin, which is an oral cephalosporin, sort of like rocephin IV. Um, but the interesting thing was that if the females were hormonally active, they needed a longer duration of treatment. So you noted earlier that there's this sort of four week cycle for Lyme disease. So can you Talk to us in more detail about the Lyme cycle and how patients can observe that in their own health. I mentioned this relapsing fever thing. Lyme germs are Borrelia. It's a kind of a spirochete. And Borrelia typically don't grow in a steady fashion. They grow for a period of time, then they go dormant, then they grow again, they go dormant. And it's a matter of a genetic shift that they undergo to try and evade the immune system. Because when they go dormant, they do a genetic shift. So when they wake up again, the body sees a different germ and hasn't had a chance yet to get a good immune response to it. It just has immune response to build, starts to build, the germ changes again. So what that does clinically is two things. One is it makes your symptoms come and go in cycles. For classic Lyme Borrelia, it's about a four-week cycle. The second thing it does is because it's a different germ every cycle, 
That's why the symptoms change. It could be bad knees for a month and then that's better and then it could be headaches for a month and then that gets less and then you get numb and then that goes away and it's a different knee. <laughs> and that's the typical classic multi-system migratory cyclic case of Lyme disease. So many people correlate their Lyme symptoms or Lyme flares with the cycle of the moon. Do you think this could be a misinterpretation of just a Lyme cycle or do you think there may be something to the cycle of the moon and the gravitational pull that can impact the Lyme bacteria as well? Oh, I don't know about that. I never really studied that. I know Lyme has a four-week cycle. Um, I know with women, when they're hormonally active, that often coincides with their flare. Maybe not in the beginning, but they do get coordinated later on. But I never really track moon cycles. I know some people do, but I really have no data on that. So talk to us more about how you use this Lyme cycle to treat patients. So instead of treating them consistently with antibiotics, you developed a protocol to treat them a little bit differently to address this sort of awakening and going to sleep of the bacteria every four weeks? Well, the big challenge in treating Lyme disease is knowing when to stop. We don't have a test for cure at all. Um, so if you don't treat long enough, the person either doesn't get completely well or they relapse. So what is the answer? Keep them on antibiotics forever? Well, obviously not. So there must be some way to track the Lyme patient's progress. And there really is no test for that. Not even CD57s, not C4As. Really, there isn't anything like that. But clinically, you know, if you have an active infection, you're going to have this four-week cycle, and you're going to have things that migrate. So I'd have all my patients keep a daily diary, um, and preferably just have a calendar where each page is a month, and you check off good days and bad days, or a black dot's a bad day, and a blue is good, and some yellows in between, or numbers one through five. And this way, you can hold the calendar up in front of you after a period of time, say, so look at that. Every four weeks, I'm having a cycle. I had one patient who said, gee, that's the strangest thing. Every four weeks, I'd have a sinus infection. I have to go to my doctor and get another dose of antibiotics. But I went back. She kept the diary for over, I think it was a year and a half. And this was going on for a year and a half. I said, this is not a monthly sinus infection. You have the Lyme disease. And of course, the testing was positive and it proved the whole point. So I used the four-week cycle to judge if the infection is still present. So clinically, what you do is you put something on someone on treatment, expect to hurt some reaction a few days into it. That'll settle down about four weeks later. Now the germs kind of get in sync for whatever reason. About four weeks later, there's another heart summer. That four-week flare-up is usually the worst, even worse than the initial one. Then after that settles down, there might be another one of four weeks later until the whole thing winds down. So I would keep the people on treatment, following their symptoms, following the diary, until we get to the point where we expect the flare-up and we don't get one. So now to me, it seems like the disease is controlled. I wouldn't stop then. I'd go for another month just to be sure we didn't miss a cycle. And when everything completely stopped, that's when we would stop treatment. So talk to us a little bit more about your use of cycle therapy to treat Lyme disease. Um, well, there are two different kinds of cycles. One is pulse therapy. And the other one's called cycle therapy. Um, not psychotherapy, cycle therapy. <laughs> I see you laughing. I can see your face. Anyway, we'll start by cycle therapy. Um, Let's say you have a patient on treatment and they're improving over time, but they never completely get back to normal. They hit a plateau. So my thinking is that, you know, the Lyme germs, when they are active and growing, that's when antibiotics kill them. If you get to the point where you're at a stalemate and the symptoms are continuing, but you're not gaining ground, you're on some kind of plateau. Like the germs are either dormant or they're just not growing. When they're not growing, they're not being killed. So you're on a stalemate. So what I would do in that case is I would completely stop all treatments, medicines, herbs, everything, and let the patient just sit untreated for a while. And typically what would happen is these patients who still had symptoms, 
the next week or so, they'd actually feel better. They stop their hurtsing and whatever's going on. And they actually feel better for a couple of weeks. But by the third week, they start to get an inkling something's happening. By the fourth week, they know they're back and having symptoms again. So at that point, I would get them back on a full dose of antibiotics because now the germs are growing. They come out of dormancy. They come out of the cystic form. They come out of their bioforms, whatever they're hiding in. Now they're active. Ha! Now that's when you can kill them with antibiotics. So I'd hit them hard with a full dose of antibiotics, go through the Herxheimer, get them through maybe the second Herx, like six weeks of treatment, and then completely stop again. Um, and continue the cycle of on and off, full dose. And in most every patient, after about four full cycles, the whole thing would completely stop and not come back. Now we know about the so-called persistent forms of Lyme. And they actually did a study where they found if they did this kind of cycle therapy, not all of them, but a lot of the persisters actually were killed off. And it didn't require using, you know, all these new exotic drugs and whatever, just standard treatment by cycling it, it made it go away. Now, this is what I started to do back in the early 90s, had no idea about, you know, with the newer studies and the newer drugs, but still it really worked. So the cycle therapy is to match the treatment to the cycle of the germ, to get them out of their hiding, to get them out of the dormant state and hit them when they're active, when they're susceptible. And that's really a, a very good thing. In fact, one of the, I had Lyme four times in my life, four separate tick bites, and I know the last time I had Lyme, the way I got rid of it was doing that cycle. And when I went through the fourth cycle, that one was the worst hurt I ever had, even worse than when I was on IVs at one point. And then it all disappeared and never came back. So it really does work. Um, not for everybody, but enough that it's worth doing. Certainly it's better than just keeping someone on antibiotics forever. Now, the second thing, you want to talk about pulse therapy? Yes, please. All right. <laughs> Talking a lot here. I'm sorry. No, this this um, is great. Please keep going. All right. Well, you know, we're going to run out of time soon, so I have to talk fast. Um, there was a study done out of Germany where they had patients who were given chronic Lyme, were given Rosefin IV, and um, they didn't completely get over it. And they cultured them after treatment, and the spirochetes were still there. So they said, how could the, tick, uh, the spirochete evade full dose of Rosefin? So what they decided to do was to double the dose of Rosefin. But to do it safely, they decided to not give it seven days a week. Turns out it takes about three days, about two days, maybe three days to kill a spirochete with antibiotics because it's what's called time killing curve. So once you've inhibited them with an antibiotic, because they grow and regenerate so slowly, it takes them a long time before they'll start to come back out of this, you know, out of their damaged state from being hit with an antibiotic. So their theory was we'll use a double dose of Rosefin, say two days a week, and in between that have no treatment at all. So this way it's safe enough to give a double dose. And sure enough, they found these people who weren't getting better finally did get better and the cultures were negative. So now I adapted that to my treatments because number one, it allowed me to give a stronger medicine or a higher dose in a safer way. Number two has to do with IV access. If you look through side effects of Lyme treatment, by far the number one side effect has to do with complications of the long IV lines, pick lines and central lines and all those. They get infected, they get clotted, terrible things happen. By using pulse therapy with an IV, you don't need a long line. I would give someone what's called a heparin lock, a little shunt that goes in the vein in the wrist on the forearm, and it can last you two or three days. So they get the heparin lock put in, they take their antibiotic IV for two days, maybe three days in a row. Then as soon as that's done, they pull the IV out and they can do it themselves at home. Then the rest of the week, there's no drug, no IV, no clotting, nothing. So it not only is making it safer and more effective, 
it's also giving them half a week or more than half a week when they don't have an IV and they can swim, they can take a shower, they can do normal things. So when I was doing IV therapy, pretty much all the time I converted to pulse therapy because again, it's safer and more effective and much better lifestyle. So you mentioned the different phases of the Lyme bacteria and you made a statement in one of your other interviews that we'd watched that germs that are not growing cannot be killed. So what other, what other stages are there of the Lyme bacteria? There's obviously the spirochete active phase. You mentioned the round cyst phase. There's also these, these biofilms, or as you refer to them, the, the S or the slime layer. So what are the various shapes that the Lyme bacteria can take on? And what are the ones that we want to make it turn into to be active to attack with the, the antibiotics? Well, the spirochete, is called spirochete because it's a spiral corkscrew shaped bacteria. And that has all the components of a class of bacterium. It's got a cell membrane and a cell wall and, and filaments and so forth. And antibiotics kill germs in different ways and drugs like penicillin and rocephin and amoxicillin kill them by get rid of, getting, attacking the cell wall, getting rid of the cell wall, interfering with its production. And so an antibiotic like amoxicillin rocephin can kill a spiral type of spirochete. The spirochetes are not dumb. <laughs> they've been on this planet longer than we have. And they've learned to be able to shed the cell wall and roll up into a little ball, a cystic form or round body, they call it different names, and still survive without a cell wall. A very interesting study was done where they treated with IV rocephin in a test tube, um, IV form of rocephin in a test tube of spirochetes. And after a week, they stopped the treatment and these little round bodies reformed into spirochetes. So it was their way of evading the antibiotic. Also, the cell wall is one of the components that the immune system attacks. So if you don't have a cell wall, it's harder for the immune system to recognize and get rid of these things. So that's, so the one is the spiral thing with the cell wall. The second is the round body of cystic form that doesn't have a cell wall, um, just a cell membrane. And then the third one is the biofilm form. And it was found back, McDonald found this back in the 80s and NIH with the Goldstein found this back in 1990, 1991, that spirochetes secrete an S layer, S for slime, which you now know as biofilm, which was documented by Eva Sapi. And it's like, like the germs get embedded in this gelatinous substance. It's like, did your grandmother ever make you this jello with fruit floating around it, this weird looking thing? Well, that's kind of what it is. It's spirochetes embedded in this gelatin. And it's found that our immune components cannot penetrate the biofilm and a lot of antibiotics cannot either. And Ivasapi demonstrated that you need 1000 times higher dose of antibiotic to kill a spirochete in the biofilm. Another crazy thing that she found, she had a, a, a Petri dish with slime spirochetes in the biofilm and she put full strength chlorine bleach on it, Clorox. And what happened was it caused the surface of the gel to burn and form a crust and protected the inside. The spirochetes were still alive. Is that nuts? So that's a real big, big part of it. Um, and, you know, we've been talking all this time about Lyme disease. Bartonella, which is another killer tick germ, Bartonella is even worse in terms of making a, a, um, an S layer or a, a biofilm. And you can actually see photographs of this in bloodstream. You know, the capillaries in our body are very tiny and blood cells themselves have to fold in half to get through these tiny, tiny blood vessels. But what I've seen in the Bartonella pictures and videos is you have this gelatinous mass of consisting of Bartonella and blood cells in one big blob. I can't see how that could ever get through capillaries. So part of this whole thing and part of the brain fog and, and peripheral symptoms 
and shortness of breath you get with Lyme and Bartonella, Babesia, has to do with capillaries not getting the blood flow that they should. So let's talk about co-infections because we know that your belief is if you're going to address the Lyme disease, then the co-infections likely will not make you sick. Many people today focus on just treating Bartonella or Babesia or Anaplasma or Ehrlichia, but it sounds like you're saying if you just approach the Lyme disease and you can get that under control, your body will be able to manage these, these other co-infections. So is that, is that a correct assessment of your belief about these co-infections? I don't really know, and I'll tell you why. Something changed in the world of Lyme disease back in the early 90s. Before then, someone with even chronic Lyme for years, years, even congenital Lyme, you'd give them Rosefin four weeks, six weeks, and they were well, and they stayed well, and that was it. But something happened in the 90s, and I wasn't the first one to notice it. In fact, we were at a conference in New Jersey, and several different people independently start to get around and say, hey, did you notice what's going on? Something changed back then where you needed to treat longer, higher doses, combination of antibiotics. So something is different. Now, in the early days of Lyme, again, we didn't know about co-infections, didn't even know about Babesia, truthfully. And I'd give the patients Lyme treatments with Lyme Borrelia type of treatments, and they all got completely better. And if they had co-infections, that would not be a problem because they got better and stayed better. Another thing was I had a group of patients, there was an outbreak of babesiosis in Long Island. Um, I don't remember the year, but I guess in the late 80s, I suppose, or early 90s. And I had maybe a few dozen patients come in, both in a period of a few weeks, with acute babesiosis. Now, in those days, we didn't have treatment for babesia other than a horrible drug called pentamidine. You had to get from the CDC, it was a terribly painful injection in the buttocks, and it caused you to get diabetes because it damaged your pancreas. <laughs> so nobody wanted to treat people that way. Um, and these people who had Babesia, we didn't treat them. And they all went through the, the symptoms of Babesia that we all recognize. And over a period of about six weeks, they all got better with no treatment and nothing bothered them. That was it, unless they had Lyme disease. If they had Lyme disease, we had the whole picture of the chronic Lyme, the chronic Babesia, the whole entire thing. And knowing that the Lyme Borrelia do things bad to the immune system, you know, I always would say that it's always a Borrelia. If you can get rid of the Borrelia and the immune system heals and the toxins are released and the whole thing heals up, that's really all you have to do. However, nowadays I'm seeing more and more that the co-infections are starting to be pretty much as much of a problem as the Lyme Borrelia itself. And I don't know if I were still in practice today, if I could just say, I'm gonna treat the Lyme, ignore the Bartonella or ignore the Babesia, because there are, you know, again, after this, turning point in the early 90s, you know, we'd have treat treatments with Lyme type antibiotics um, and people would improve to a certain level, but not completely get over it. And then we said, oh my God, this is new germ. It's a Bartonella-like organism. What's well, a Babesia parasite? And we treat that. And then the last 20% improvement would occur. So the co-infections in the beginning seem to not be an issue, but now they certainly are. So my final question before handing it back over to Rich is about exercise. We have many people that have reached out to us that are bed bound or wheelchair bound, and they just, they say they just can't exercise, but we've come to learn that without exercise, you it's very unlikely to get better, or it's going to, it's going to make it a much harder process for you to recover. And we know that you strongly feel that exercise is a key component to getting over Lyme disease as well. In fact, you worked with somebody in the community to put together a very gentle exercise program for people with Lyme. So can you talk to, about, can you talk to us about your views regarding exercise and Lyme and your recommendations to people who are very sick and can barely get out of bed? 
I've come up with a plan for exercise with Lyme disease. And the point of it, most people don't understand. The point of it is not to give you strength. It's not to give you mobility. It's to build back the damaged immune system. Studies have been shown that when you exercise aggressively, even healthy people, the function of the T cells in the immune system will drop temporarily, 12 to 24 hours, and then rebound after that. The Lyme patient, what I did studying the patients is that the um, de decrease in immune function would last a little bit longer, but then would still rebound afterwards. So the rehab program I came up with was based on trying to build back the immune system by having the person do a complete whole body exercise from head to toe, gentle, but head to toe for 45 minutes to an hour. And then as soon as they're done, have a hot bath or hot shower and then right away go to bed because it's when you sleep and rest that your immune system recharges. And then they're not allowed to do any exercise at all for the next several days. And then they go back and do this one hour. Over time, as they get stronger and they get healthier, you can decrease the interval from set of every five days to every four days, maybe every third day, but never, never, never two days in a row. Second thing is it's a whole body program. So you can't say, well, I'm gonna exercise my arms and chest one day and my legs the next. No, it's a whole body head to toe. Third thing is aerobics are not allowed because aerobics damage the T cell function. I should say damage, it's the wrong word. They suppress the T cell function um, more so than, um, than, ex than resistance exercise. So it's a toning and conditioning, like a body sculpting type program where you, you do a good warm up, then every muscle from head to toe is exercised and a good stretching afterwards of everything. And then hot bath, hot shower, go to bed and then rest for several days and repeat. And over time it really works. And after about five or six weeks, then the patients start to say, wow, I'm feeling better. I'm not going to take a nap. This exercise has energized me. Then you know that there's a change. Now I'll go one step further. What I found in my chronic patients is if they did not do this, they would not get better. You absolutely have to do this to get better. Now, what about someone who's lying in bed right now listening and say, are you nuts? I have trouble going to the bathroom right now. Well, I don't care if you have to lift your pinky up and down five times. I mean, do whatever you can do. Um, in fact, one of my patients quoted me something very interesting. It came from um, the Canadian, what do they call them? The, the uh, mounted police. Uh, they have their own guideline of exercise and they say to get started, they say, get up off the ground any way you can. <laughs> and that's how you start. So that's my advice to the Lyme patient who's really sick now thinking, what is he nuts? Do whatever you can do. I don't care how minimal it is, as long as it's from head to toe for 45 minutes, followed by the rest and followed by several days of doing nothing. Likewise, I've had people say, well, you know, I'm going to lift my weights and do my elastic bands and whatever, whatever. And then I'll do that on Monday and Wednesday and Friday. And on Tuesday, Thursday, Saturday, I'll ride my bike and go skating. No, the days you do nothing, you do nothing. It also means the days you do nothing is not when you do the housekeeping, go shopping and do all the chores and vacuuming, whatever. No, you do that on your active days. And on the rest days, you do absolutely nothing. Because again, it's not about conditioning. It's not about muscle building. It's not about circulation. It's about restoring the immune system. There's one other component, which I'll tell you quickly. Um, we have not just blood in our system circulating. We have what's called lymph. It's like the tissue fluid. And a lot of the toxins and even the, the germs get trapped in this fluid and they can't really escape because there's no pumping of a heart in lymph. It just relies on body motion and muscle action. And so movement also gets the lymph to flow. The only ways you can get lymph to flow is by movement and by massage. And so part of this exercise program is getting the lymph to move. And there's a very big component of lymph is immune cells. 
they go through the lymph and get into the um, into the bloodstream and go to the spleen and then recirculate that way. So moving the lymph is part of getting the immune system to recover. So talk to us more about how the immune system is connected to this gentle exercise and what behavior during these gentle exercises or, or toning actually strengthens the immune system. It's not any one specific tone or action or exercise. It's simply the movement, the circulation, getting the lymph to flow. And it's probably having to do with adrenal function and other hormonal regulatory steps, and possibly even the autonomic nervous system, which can affect the immune function. Also gets the bowels to move, very important for the immune function. But basically the body's not designed to lie around. And if you're doing that, you're gonna get sicker or at least not get well. I think your mic is muted. All right, here we go. Sorry, is. thank you. <laughs> yeah. You you're got me. This. You can't even run your microphone. <laughs> So we have so many people reach out who are wheelchair bound or bed bound, but are looking for guidance about what they can do to move and start to get their body moving again. Is there some sort of website or reference you can give us to look into this protocol that you've worked with and used in your other line patients that we can direct people to, to start this process? You know, um, there are a small subgroup of rehab therapists who do what's called functional rehab. Um, so if you go to a physical therapist because you sprained an ankle, so they lie on the table, they wrap you in heat for a while, then they massage and they make you go on an exercise machine and say, bye, I'll see you next week. That's not going to do anything for a Lyme patient. Then they have those who give you medicine balls to throw around. <laughs> That's going to probably hurt you. So you don't want to do that. But there are a group who are functional rehab specialists. And what does that mean? Like one of my friends who's one of these guys was watching someone in the gym lifting weights, lifting dumbbells. And he says, in your lifetime, are you ever going to be using that motion to lift anything that heavy for that reason? I said, no. I said, that's not what people do. A more important function is like being able to climb stairs and lifting your arms and full range of motion of your chest and of your shoulders and functional things, getting your body to function better. And so looking for a functional rehab therapist was a really, really good way to get started. So Dr. Oscano, you have now wound down your practice. In fact, in 2006, you wound down your practice and you went on to another stage in your life, in your career. Can you talk to us about why you wound down your practice and what you're doing now? One of my friends and, and work colleagues um, has a biotech company and he came to me asking me to work for him. And it's the kind of company that allowed us to do research that in the long run helped not just the few patients per day I could see in my office, but a lot of people. Um, so I jumped at the chance. Um, it was hard for me to leave my practice and all the people who supported me all the years and all the things I've done. But, you know, I've educated a lot of doctors and a lot of patients and done all the things. It's time for me to move on and try and look at something in a bigger picture. And from that, we, um, a perfect example, advanced labs. It's one of the outcomes of this. Advanced labs, um, it's a small laboratory in Pennsylvania. And they said to me, you know, we want, we do simple blood tests, but we want to have something unique that no one else has that makes us special. I said, oh boy, do I have an idea for you? <laughs> Think of McDonald's blood culture. So what I did was, well, actually I have to go back in time. Eva Sapi started doing her research on Lyme disease and she was growing lab strains of Borrelia in her Petri dishes. So I told her about Alan McDonald. This is years ago while I was still in practice. And eventually got the two of them to meet and work together. And he gave her some of his secrets on doing the blood culture. 
So Eva Sapia started to get very good at culturing Borrelia and that's how she started her research and was able to, with the help of the Turn the, her Turn the Corner Foundation, get her a $5,000 grant to get her off the ground. And so she started doing that work. And then moving forward to when I started to work for the biotech company, um, they were consulting to advanced labs. They didn't own it, but they were consulting to it. And the lab came to me and said, what do you recommend? I said, all right, let's do the culture. So they basically hired Eva Sapi as a consultant to help them develop the culture. And one of her actual students worked with them and eventually became one of their employees and they developed the culture. And they were very successful. They did maybe six or 7,000 blood cultures on the Lyme patients and published studies showed the sensitivity was 92% picked up Lyme even in chronically infected patients and has 0% false positives. Um, so that was a really big thing. Unfortunately, they lost money in every single test they did. Eventually they had to close for financial reasons, but that's just one example of the kind of things I was able to do. And many people to this day will talk about how the advanced lab test was the best test ever done. So give us something that will allow our audience to be hopeful. What, what new things are on the horizon? What kinds of things are you working on that should cause folks who are suffering from chronic Lyme disease to be hopeful that uh, there will be some new tests and some new tools that will make their lives better? Well, first of all, one thing that I always tell people is there's a reason why you're not well, and it's a matter of finding out what it is and fixing it. And by and large, you can get better. And so don't lose faith, don't get discouraged. You just have to keep working at it because you can get better. And I've had people who were sick for their whole life who got better and so have many other Lyme doctors. So number one is it's not hopeless. It's not the end of the world. In fact, it's a new beginning because you can get better. Um, and some people get better in strange ways. I mean, <laughs> one lady was diagnosed by, by Stony Brook of all places as having you know, end-stage Alzheimer's disease. She had to be fed and dressed and she was basically bedbound. McDonald's culture showed positive. She was treated by me and got completely well. Personality changed though. She ended up divorcing her husband and moved to Texas. <laughs> so maybe Lyme can make you better in the long run with the good treatment. All right, so all the jokes aside, what's happening? Better testing. Remember we talked about seronegativity, maybe because you're testing for the wrong germ. Newer testing, Igenix, for example, has the immunoblots. They can test for all the different species of Lyme Borrelia as well as relapsing fever Borrelia. Their PCRs and fish tests are genus specific, not species. So they pick up all the broad varieties. So that's a big deal. Um, we're getting better testing for Bartonella. Bob Mosiani, who's one of the big names in Bartonella testing and treatment, I should say, is doing research that the company I work for is sponsoring to develop better Bartonella testing. And he's come up with some great things that he's presenting now at ILADS. Um, so the testing is getting much, much, much better. Um, so that's number one. Once you know what's going on, that's, that's a big thing. Number two, treatments are getting better. In the conventional realm, we have drugs like disulfiram, um, better drugs for treating yeast infections. Um, so as we learn more from the new treatments, this whole subgroup of people who were not getting better before now are getting better. And the third thing that's happening is that more and more doctors are finally becoming aware of this toxicity thing that happens to chronic Lyme patients. And they are treating them and testing them and treating them for mold and heavy metals and glyphosate and insecticides and all the other crazy things that people with Lyme seem to accumulate. And in the long run, I think these people not only will get over the Lyme, but they'll probably be healthier and live longer because they now cleaned out their system. Thank you for listening to the Tick Bootcamp interview with Dr. Joseph Buriscano. To our listeners, we have a call to action. 
First, if you enjoyed this episode of the Tick Bootcamp podcast, please share it with your friends by using the social media buttons you see at the bottom of the post. Second, Tick Bootcamp has created a Tick Byte blueprint that has been inspired by the information that has been provided to us by past podcast guests. We urge you to visit our website at www.tickbootcamp.com to view the blueprint. Please note we would appreciate any input or any improvements you would like to offer. Third, don't forget to subscribe to this podcast on iTunes, Google Play Music, or Spotify to get your automatic episode updates of our Tick Bootcamp podcast. And finally, we thank you, our listeners, for your comments on our past podcast episodes. Please take a minute to leave us an honest review on iTunes, on Instagram, or on our website. We make it a point to read every single one of the reviews we get. Thank you for listening.